Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word. Father, the psalmist says that uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that it is in your light that we see light. Father, as we study your word, it is the light of truth that shines upon our thinking, illuminating our minds to the eternal realities, the eternal absolutes that you have built into your creation, for you are the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that our focus will be on you, that we will be able to concentrate and study this morning, and that as we do so, that uh, God the Holy Spirit would make clear to us that which we are studying, that it will be uh, used by you in our own lives for our own spiritual benefit and growth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are going to be moving through several different passages this morning in the Old Testament. Uh, our core passage is in 2 Kings chapter 18, but we'll also be looking at 2 Chronicles 29 uh, through 31, though we won't hit every verse there. We would be here until the 4th of July. And uh, we'll also be looking at some things in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9, so you might want to mark some of those right now so we can move there fairly quickly. 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 29, and Leviticus chapter 8. One of the things that has really plagued, bothered, worried, frustrated, confused, and depressed uh, a lot of Christians down through the ages and a lot of others who are concerned about their spiritual life is the issue of what in the world do we do with the whole problem of, of sin and guilt. Sin is that which violates the standard of God. In the Old Testament, there are some four or five different words that describe sin. You have uh, the basic word, uh, indicates missing the mark, falling short of God's standard, not hitting the target. Then you have another word that indicates a violation of God's law, a trespass. Then you have a, another word that indicates the more the nature uh, of sin itself, iniquity. 
and then there are some lesser words that are also used at, at different times. So there is a a, a full sense of, of sin expressed uh, in the Old Testament, and this is visualized in the Old Testament in the ritual of the tabernacle and the temple because every time a worshiper would come to the temple or, or the tabernacle or the temple, in order to come before God, in order to worship God, they had to bring a sacrifice. And we've studied these in the past in our study in Hebrews, especially in Hebrews chapter 8 through 10. And if you haven't uh, listened to those uh, that series, then that would be where you get the full development of the different sacrifices and offerings uh, in Leviticus and uh, the, all of the rituals that were related to the, uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, the trespass offerings, guilt offerings. All of these were uh, different aspects of, of the spiritual life of a, an Israelite in the Old Testament. And they all focus on the fact that before a worshiper can come into the presence of God, something has to be done. There is a problem of uncleanness is one word that is used, or impurity. Uh, There's the problem of sin. There's the problem of guilt. There's the problem of the unintentional sins. And then there's the problem of the intentional sin. And so it's all of these various sacrifices that were brought to the tabernacle that provided ritual cleansing for sin. And in the process of most of the sacrifices, there is the uh, sacrifice or the slaughter of a lamb or a ram or a bull or a goat. In some cases, for those who were poor who could not afford to bring a a bull or a goat or a lamb, then they would bring a a bird. They would bring a a, a dove uh, for for the sacrifice. And each one of these sacrifices depicts certain aspects of what needs to be done in order to solve this enormous problem of sin that breaks the relationship, hinders the relationship between the individual. And God, and what God was pointing out in all of those different sacrifices is that there's nothing that the individual can really do on his own, that, that the, the, all sin has to be dealt with on the basis of a death. And that goes back to Genesis chapter 2 when God told Adam that in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, In that day, you will certainly die. And there was a death, though he didn't die physically for 930 years. He died spiritually. There was something that happened instantly when Adam sinned, and that relationship with God was broken. So that when God then came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve later that day, uh, they ran and hid. Uh, When they sinned, after they sinned, they immediately recognized they were naked, the Scripture says, and they were ashamed, so they tried to cover it up with with uh, by sewing together garments from fig leaves. And so this was ineffective because when God came, they were still fearful. They were afraid, the Scripture says, and they hid. And so then after God outlined for them in the last part of Genesis 3 what the consequences for sin would be in terms of how it would affect the world, how it, the physical world, how it would affect the animal kingdom, how it would affect uh, both the man and the woman, then God made clothes for them out of animal skins. And 
And that's all that's said there, just a very brief statement. But when you stop and you think about it, as I pointed it out, to make clothes out of animal skins is not something that is, that is simple. If you have ever been a hunter and you have had to uh, dress an animal that you have shot, you realize that this takes time and work and it's rather messy, and then after you skin the animal, you have to figure out what you're going to do with the hide, how are you going to preserve the hide, because if you just leave it out then it, untreated, then it will harden and stiffen, and in just a couple of days it's hard as a rock, and there's no way you can ever uh, do anything with it to make clothes out of it. So in, in that whole process, God had to give them instruction as to just exactly what the best way would be in order to sacrifice an animal, uh, how to clean the animal afterwards, how to uh, eviscerate the animal, how to wash out the animal, how to skin the animal, and how to properly treat the leather so that it would be nice and soft and supple in order to be uh, a clothing. And so the very fact that there's this provision of clothing that would provide a covering is in itself sort of a a picture of what atonement does as you get on into further developments of that idea in the sacrificial uh, sacrificial system. And one of the root ideas in the word that we find for, uh, for atonement is that concept of covering, although that really isn't what atonement means. That's, uh, and there have been a lot of studies on this word in the, the Hebrew use of the word over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, and there have been uh, some really good, good studies and discoveries made on the, the basic uh, meaning of that word, which we'll get into a little bit this morning. And so we have this problem of sin. What do you do with sin? I mean, we all sin. We all trespass. We all violate the law. Not only do we have the uh, the unintentional sins, the, but we also have, as the Old Testament points out, we have intentional sins. And there were no sacrifices for intentional sin. There's no sacrifice. Uh, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, uh, were not for the un- I mean, not for the intentional sin. That would be covered by an annual offering, an annual sacrifice on the day of Yom Kippur, and on the day of atonement. Then this is a national day of atonement. But it had to go year after year. That that covering for sin uh, that took place with the sacrifice on the day of atonement only covered the nation until the next year, the next Yom Kippur. And year after year, you had to go through that same ritual. And that was a highly instructive ritual because the priest would take, uh, would take two, two goats and he would put his hand, and in most of the sacrifices, you have the same symbolism where the person, the worshiper who's bringing the sacrifice lays his hand upon the lamb or the sheep, or, or the goat, and in that placing of the hand upon the goat or the, or the lamb, it's a picture of transfer, that, a picture of identification, that the sin of the worshiper is being passed to the sacrificial animal, and then the penalty is now going to be paid by that sacrificial animal. And so the worshiper would come, or the high priest would take the two, the two, two goats on the on the Day of Atonement, and he would place his hand upon those goats, picturing the transfer of the sins of the people to the goats. One would be killed because the penalty for sin is death, and the other one would be let go. He would be taken by 
uh, someone who was knowledgeable, someone who's a friend of the high priest because he understands somebody who's trustworthy to take the, this, the goat called the scapegoat out into the desert, out into the wilderness, far enough to where the goat couldn't find his way back. And the picture of that was that when God removes the sin of, of the believer, it is removed permanently, and it's not going to come back so that God is the one who can completely deal with, with, with sin. Now, the other problem that you have with sin is, is guilt. And we use the term guilt in one of two ways. We use it in a, an objective way, and we use it in a subjective way. Now, the objective way refers to guilt for breaching the law, violating a rule, breaking a standard. You are guilty. You may not feel guilty. You may not be sorry that you did it. You may uh, commit the act in violation of the, of the law, in full knowledge of the fact that you're violating the law, but you might even be glad that you did it. Some of you who have a heavy foot and you're driving down the freeway at 80 miles an hour, which most people in Houston do, uh, in violation of the speed limit, which is 60, then you don't feel an ounce of guilt or sorrow or remorse. You do feel a little pain when you get the ticket, and have to pay the price, uh, but you, even then you're not too, too uh, awfully overwhelmed with guilt or remorse. That's objective guilt. The other kind of guilt are guilt feelings. This is when we beat up on ourselves because we've done something we shouldn't have done and we've gotten caught. That's usually what happens with most people is that when they get caught, then they're terribly sorry. They're not sorry they did it. They're just sorry they got caught and have to pay the penalty. Uh, that's, that's subjective guilt. Then there are people who just feel guilty because they should. And, and, and that's their, that's the little trend of their personality or sin nature. And just whatever happens, they feel guilty. These are people who probably flunk most lie detector tests just because they, they walk into the, uh, environment and just assume that they're lying or they're telling something wrong. Some people are very much like that. They're just, you know, as soon as something happens, they assume it's their fault. Uh, when they had nothing at all to do with it. So that's just subjective guilt. And that weighs a person down and, and hinders a, that's like a, a psychological emotional shackle and it all, and it's very destructive to your spiritual life. And when, when the sin penalty is paid, it wipes out both. It pays the penalty for the infraction which covers the sin so that there's the violation is dealt with. Objective real guilt has been paid for, and so that's, that's removed. But because that's removed, if you act guilty, think you're guilty, respond in a subjectively guilty state of mind, what you're saying is that, that the payment really didn't do it. I've got to add something to it by my own acts of remorse and contrition and guilt feelings. And, and that's just a denial of the objective reality of the payment. And when it comes to spiritual things, that becomes a sin because what you're basically saying is, on the one hand, I believe Christ paid for my sins, but on the other hand, I've got to add, add a little guilt and remorse and contrition to it because if I don't, add something to what Christ did, then, then, then if I don't do that, then something must be wrong. And that's the whole point in the gospel is that Jesus Christ paid it all before he died on the cross. He said to the last die, it is finished. It's complete. The payment is paid in full. You can't come back and add more to it. If you go out to eat with somebody and they buy your dinner, 
You can't go back into the restaurant afterwards and say, here, I want to help out just a little bit and let me help pay for, pay the bill because the bill's already paid for. You you just can't add to it. And that's why you, we rely on the death of Christ alone. That's when we, when we say faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation. That's the significance of the alone. So you have this problem with sin. And how is that dealt with? And what we see in the Old Testament sacrifices is this tremendous picture of how sin is dealt with. Now, in Israel, in the uh, period of the uh, late 8th century, period around 730 to 700, uh, there's a tremendous amount of guilt. There is a tremendous amount of real guilt, especially because of the evil reign of Ahaz. And this is described... In Second Kings chapter 17, but also in, or actually 15, but also in Second Chronicles chapter chapter 28. And so, for review, I'm going to look at the Chronicles passage rather than the passage in in Second Kings. A couple of things are said about about Ahaz. Just in terms of summary, we looked at him the last couple of times. Ahaz was not the worst king in the southern kingdom of of Judah. He's probably the second worst king. His grandson Manasseh was the worst, the most evil of the kings in in the southern kingdom of, of Judah. Ahaz became king when he was 20 years old. He reigned for 16 years. And from the very beginning, as soon as his father uh, died, his father Jotham, who was very oriented to serving the Lord and was a good king, as soon as Jotham died, it was like uh, the, the restraints were off, and Ahaz immediately uh, took a high dive deep into the idolatry of the northern kingdom. He immediately went around establishing altars all for the various false gods all around uh, uh, Judah. He burned incense, which has to do with uh, worship of these gods. He burned incense in the valley of, uh, uh, of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his children in the fire. This is uh, child sacrifice. He's immolating his own children on the fiery altars of, of Moloch. And some of the other gods also indicate, or there's archaeological evidence, that even in Baalism there was child sacrifice. And so this is just absolutely horrible. And then uh, he sacrificed and burned incense on all of the different high places. And this has to do with the observance of all of these sexual fertility rites that took place in the worship of Baal and the various forms of the fertility re- uh, religions, which was just a very primitive form of the worship of, of, of prosperity. Because by uh, placating the, these so-called gods and goddesses of fertility, then you would be prosperous. And it certainly didn't work for Ahaz, and it hasn't worked for anybody else, because God brought him under significant divine, uh, divine discipline uh, during his reign. And we see the, the divine judgment on that, the divine uh, critique and evaluation of, of in Second Chronicles chapter 18, verse 19. What happened during this period was that he, as we studied last time, he was invaded by the Arameans from Damascus, the Syrians. He was invaded by the Israel, Northern Kingdom of Israel, 
uh, by Pica, and that was the context we studied last time with the uh, great prophecy, messianic prophecy in Isaiah uh, 7.14 that a child would be uh, born of a virgin. And so that was the context of that, that even though he was going through all of this uh, opposition and invasion, and there were numerous captives and uh, tens of thousands killed, nevertheless God was going to preserve the house of David to fulfill his, his covenant with David. But as a result of all of that, the southern kingdom is really just brought to its knees. It's one of the most horrible times economically, uh, in the nation, it's a horrible time personally. There's military conquest again and again. And we're told that, verse 19, For the Lord brought Judah low, or humbled Judah, because of Ahaz, the king of, uh, the king of Israel. He's the king of Judah. For he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was extremely unfaithful to the Lord. That's the reason for the collapse. See, it wasn't a military collapse because they had overspent their military budget and they just couldn't keep up with the latest technology. It wasn't a military collapse because they had uh, bad military leadership and they were overwhelmed by the advanced uh, strategic understanding of the uh, foreign powers that invaded them. What we see in the scripture is that there are, there are two dimensions operating. There's the physical dimension related to uh, various laws that operate within creation, not only physical laws of science, but also uh, laws related to economics, the, these kinds of things. But above that, there's the rule of God, and there is the invisible realm of the angels, and that human history is integrally related to what is going on at this broader level of the angelic rebellion against God. And all we can see and perceive are the physical, material, cause and effects relationships. But when you look at a passage like this, and the one we're going to see with Hezekiah, is what God is telling us is that the ultimate cause and effect, the, the ultimate causation of everything in life is spiritual, not physical. And so you can do all of the uh, economic studies that you want. You can do all of the scientific studies that you want. And you can come up with certain trends. But ultimately, because God rules and reigns over history, uh, things are going to happen because God says so, and they are not definable and measurable in the laboratory or through various studies, and the ultimate reality is always going to be the spiritual reality. So God is going to humble Judah. He's going to bring discipline upon the southern kingdom because the king was unfaithful and because of his spiritual rebellion. So how a nation goes spiritually is, is extremely important to how uh, is directly related to its prosperity and other aspects. Now, Ahaz, we're told, went even further. He worshipped the gods of the Syrians who defeated him, after, and he even had an altar constructed to go into the entry of the temple that was based on the pagan altar he found in Damascus, and then he took the, the altar, uh, the bronze altar there at the entry to the temple, and he just pushed that back into a storeroom, and so he, he brought full pagan worship into the temple of God. And he went even further than that. He went into the house of God and took all the articles of furniture there, and he cut them into pieces. 
And then he shut the doors to the temple and just locked everything up so nobody could go in there. And he basically removed God from the, from having any presence, any reality in the life of the nation. And then he built his own altars all over Jerusalem. And the result of that was that uh, God brought discipline on him and he died at a uh, rather young age compared to some of the other uh, other kings. And we get the, uh, the final statements about him in the last few verses of Second Chronicles 28. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. So the more God brought discipline upon him, the more rebellious and the more hostile to God he became. And you often see that pattern in individuals as well as cultures. And the last statement of verse 23 is uh, extremely informative as God tells us that it was because of these idols and his worship of these idols that they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And he was so bad that when he died, verse 27 tells us that they didn't bury him with the tombs of the kings with his fathers in Jerusalem. They just buried him uh, in the city of Jerusalem itself. And he's replaced on the throne by his son Hezekiah. Now, how, how Hezekiah got to be the man he was, we don't know because he had no example from his father. And maybe a negative example sometimes can be a good example. And maybe as Hezekiah witnessed the destruction of the nation, the devastation, as he saw the horrible uh, economic straits of the people and he witnessed these military uh, invasions and defeats, maybe Hezekiah uh, began to ask the question, why is this happening to us? And we know that you had prophets in, Israel, in uh, the southern kingdom at this time, Micah, uh, Hosea, and especially Isaiah, and that perhaps he came under their influence as a young man and he uh, believed their message that the reason the nation was in such a state of collapse was because of their spiritual condition. And so he decided to do things completely differently from his, from his father and he was c- completely oriented to God's plan and to God's word. And so Hezekiah's reign is the highest point in the nation's spiritual history and prosperity since the time of David and Solomon. And in terms of the three greatest kings in the uh, history of, of Israel and Judah, you have David and then Hezekiah and then uh, Josiah, who we will study in a, in a few weeks. So Hezekiah has given a tremendous, uh, a tremendous statement of approval and look at the last two verses in Second Chronicles 31.10. Thus, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart, and so he prospered. See, Ahaz went after all of the ways to uh, win friends, influence people, and to produce prosperity by worshiping at the altars of the fertility gods and goddesses, and it got him destruction. But Hezekiah recognized that the real source of prosperity, not simply material prosperity, but it all starts with prosperity and health in the soul, 
that the real source of prosperity is based on a relationship with God. And if that's not right, it doesn't matter what else is going on. And so as a result of the fact that he put his dedication completely on God, not to prosper, but because that was the right thing to do, God then uh, blessed him and he prospered and the nation prospered and had one of the greatest periods of prosperity uh, that they uh, that they had ever known because he was oriented to the grace of God. Now, in 2 Kings chapter 18, we have the introduction of the reign of Hezekiah. But it doesn't go into a lot of material that is covered in Chronicles. That's why I'm spending, going to be spending a little more time in Chronicles the next few weeks. And in 2 Kings 18, the first seven verses covers everything summarizes, as it were, everything that's covered in Second Chronicles 29, 30, and 31. Three long chapters in Second Chronicles, and almost nothing there is stated in Second Kings chapter 18. So we'll just hit a couple of things in this introduction and then go back to Second Chronicles. It came to pass in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, that's the northern king, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He gets an A+. You can't get a higher mark of approval from God than that he did what was right according to all that his father uh, David had done. And then verses uh, verse 4 summarizes his, and verse 4, 5, and 6 focus on his spiritual uh, value. He removed the high places, broke the pillar, sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and broke into pieces even the bronze servant. You know the story from Numbers, that when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they came to this area where they were bitten by these fiery serpents, that um, that they were dying because of this. And God told Moses to lift up. To, to make this bronze serpent in the image of the of these these uh, vipers, and to raise up that standard, and that if people would simply look at that bronze serpent, an act of faith, trusting in what God said, if they just looked at the bronze serpent, how easy can that be? You don't have to get up, you don't have to walk anywhere, you don't really do anything. You just look at the serpent, they would be instantly healed, and that's what the apostle John uses as an illustration of faith in Christ, is simply looking at that serpent is the same as believing in Christ. And that tells you that believing in Christ isn't based on works, effort, anything that we do. We don't bring anything to God and say, look, God, bless me because of what I've done. Salvation is based on what Christ did on the cross, and there's nothing else involved just as the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent. But now that bronze servant has been perverted into a pagan worship symbol. Same thing we do all the time with, or that happens all the time in the history of Christianity uh, as legalism uh, uh, seeps in and people try to somehow curry favor with God because of their own works. And so that's what happened, is that they had been worshiping the uh, bronze serpent. They called it Nehushtan from the root referring to serpent, but uh, Hezekiah destroys all of this, and verse 5, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him were none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. 
So that just covers the kings of Judah, not David. David is number one. Hezekiah is number two. Josiah is uh, number three. Why? Verse six, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And verse seven, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And then a final note, which introduces the major conflict and a uh, focus of Hezekiah's reign. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, that's, that's sort of the summary. So let's get into the details by looking at Second Chronicles 28. Now, there are 29, rather. Now, there's no way I'm going to be able to hit all of the uh, details in these three chapters of 29, 30, and 31. In 29, let me just summarize it for you. Get this in your head. In chapter 29, Hezekiah comes to the throne, and his highest priority is the spiritual relationship with God. That has to be first, because he understands that if that's not right, it doesn't matter what else he does, it will be a failure. So the first thing is we have to get right with God. But how do you get right with God? Do you do it on the basis of how you think it ought to be done or on what God has said ought to be done? And see, God has already told the Israelites in the Mosaic Law how they are to come into his presence and how they are to serve him, and that's covered in the Mosaic Law, and the, especially in the chapters in, um, in Exodus, in chapters uh, 22 through 40, which describes the construction of all of the different uh, uh, articles of, uh, that are in the, in the tabernacle, later in the temple, and in the book of Leviticus, which describes the different sacrifices and offerings as well as the requirements for the priesthood and how the priest is to serve God and then how the people are to serve God. So he realizes that he has to go back and look at what God said as the authority and do things exactly as God said to do them and that then they will have spiritual renewal in the land. And that's what chapter 29 describes. Once they have that spiritual recovery take place, because they've been in extreme rebellion uh, during the time of Ahaz, once they have that recovery in place in chapter 29, then they can worship God, which is chapter 30. Chapter 30 is when he reinstates the observance of the Passover. This is the first time in at least 16 years that there has been a national observance of the Passover because all of this was uh, basically outlawed during the apostate reign of Ahaz. And then chapter 31 comes along and further describes all of the reforms, uh, spiritual reforms that Hezekiah introduced as he's carrying out the implications of the law uh, into the rest of the nation. And so that's, that's the, the, the structure. And little is said until chapter 32, which begins with the, um, which begins with the invasion of Sennacherib. So these three chapters cover what's, what you summarized there in that first part of, of uh, 2 Kings chapter 18. So chapter 29 begin, begins much as uh, 2 Kings 18 began, telling us about uh, Hezekiah's age when he uh, became king, his, the length of his reign, uh, that his mother's name, uh, King, gave us the short form, Abi. Uh, here it's Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. 
And again, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now notice, the first thing he did was to clean the temple, ritually cleansing the temple. Now this involved two things. There had to be a a ritual cleansing of the temple, and then there had to be a cleansing of the priesthood. And then there had to be a cleansing of the people. Actually, that's that's uh, three things. But in the initial part was the cleansing of the temple, the cleansing of the priesthood. And only after that occurred could there be a, a cleansing of the nation. So he brings the priests in at the very beginning. We're told, he, verse 3, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. So he has to go in, take the padlocks and all of the uh, different things that were used to nail up and close the entryway to the, to the t- uh, temple. And he opens the temple doors, and then he brings in the priests. He gathers them on the east side, which would be in the front, because the front door of the temple faced east. And so they come into the outer courtyard, and this is where the priests gather, and he gives them a command. He says, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. And actually what this is referring to is all of the uh, things, all of the, the, the trash, all of the uh, garbage that had been put in there, the, and at one time even false, uh, even idols had been put in there by, by Ahaz. And so there has to be a cleansing. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to have a good handle on three key words. Now, for those of you who come on our Hebrew study on Thursday night, this is important for what we're, what we're studying here and, and the order of events here is, is crucial for us to understand in terms of our spiritual life, but it's also going to answer maybe some questions that were raised in terms of the order of things in our study on, um, on Thursday night in Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Three key words. The first word is the word that's usually translated atonement. It's the Hebrew word uh, kafar. The second word is the, the verb is kadash. Uh, the third word is the Hebrew word tahar. And these three words are always used in these ritual cleansing passages. Uh, the word kafar is a word that sometimes you've heard this spoken to mean to wipe or to, uh, or to, um, uh, cover something. Uh, it really doesn't have that word. There is a word in Hebrew spelled the same way that means to cover, but most uh, linguists today believe that's a separate word, that when you look at the usage of this particular root in the ritual uh, uh, context, it has two different meanings. One is the idea of appeasing the justice of God in the sense of propitiating uh, God or satisfying his justice or his righteousness. And then it also has the idea of cleansing. And what's interesting is this word is translated in the Septuagint. When the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Septuagint, they often translated this word with the word katharizo, which is the Greek word for cleansing. But what it refers to is the objective act that produces cleansing. That's how it's going to differ from the third word we're looking at here, which is tahar, which has to do with the application of 
of, of the atoning sacrifice which produces cleansing. So one refers to that which, which produces cleansing, which purposes to cleanse, and the other refers to the result of the cleansing. Okay, so that, those two words, they overlap like uh, overlapping circles. And then the other key word that we're going to find in here is the word kadash, which means to be set, something is set apart for the service of God. Uh, immaterial objects such as uh, the utensils in the temple could be holy. Uh, they're not moral or immoral. Holiness has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with service, how something is set apart to the service of God and consecrated to his service. So these three words are words that we're going to find uh, throughout this text. Now, in the New King James translation, you'll find that uh, Kadash is often translated, at least in Second uh, Chronicles 29 and 30, with the word sanctify. Whereas if you're using a New American Standard or probably the New International Version, it translates it with the word consecrate. And that's what both of those words mean in English. It means to set apart. So you can be, it's pretty consistent there. Now, uh, in, in the New King James Version in Leviticus, uh, Kadash is often translated uh, sanctify there, uh, sometimes uh, consecrate. But here it's translated uh, sanctify in New King James and con- a consecration is more uh, but is used in Leviticus, but it's the same Hebrew word, root. So let me just run through this a little bit and show you what's going on here because it's so important. Remember, the situation is is that nationally the people have been apostate. They've been in rebellion against God. They are unclean. The temple is unclean. They can't come before God's presence. They can't worship him. Something has to solve the problem. And so the first thing that has to solve the problem is there has to be a, a cleansing. And it starts with the priesthood because the priests are the ones who oversee all of the, all of the ritual and all the sacrificial systems. So they have to sanctify themselves first. First, the, the priesthood. Secondly, the priests have to sanctify the house of, of, the, of the Lord. They have to sanctify the temple. And this is going to involve various uh, sacrifices that are described in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9. So the command is given in verse 4 to sanctify, first of all, themselves, and then secondly, to sanctify the house of God. Now, that doesn't mean that they, they remove sin in their life. You can't do that. We will continue to sin one way or another until the day we die. That's not a justification or rationalization. That is a reality. Okay, that's the the difference here. But God has solved the problem. That's what the sacrifices are all about, and that's what the payment uh, payment for sin of Christ is all about. We can't do it on our own, and we're never going to solve the problem on our own. That doesn't mean that we can't have a measure of cleanup, but... We, it, it's not the first thing that happens. The first thing that happens has to be uh, following the prescription of God for cleansing. So the mandate is given in verse 5. In verse 6, the reason is given, for our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. Now, there's a lot of different sins that are listed in the Bible. Arrogance is a sin. Gossip's a sin. Slander's a sin. Uh, lying's a sin. 
All of these other things are sins. Then you have overt sins. Uh, you have a lot of overt sins, such as anger, uh, adultery is a sin, overt sin, murder is an overt sin, theft is an overt sin. Uh, you have all kinds of overt sins, and you have all kinds of... Uh, uh, but, but the worst sins are the mental attitude sins, because that underlies uh, everything else. And so, uh, but often that's what people think of when they think of evil, or they think of extreme evil actions uh, that take place. Uh, for example, the tremendous genocide that occurred under under uh, Stalin in Russia and his genocide in Ukraine. Uh, also, you have the examples of Hitler against the Jews, the horrible examples of the Holocaust. Uh, but that's not how the Bible's defining evil here. It's always in relationship to faithlessness toward God. It is always defined in terms of idolatry, and we've seen that again and again and again in our, in our study here. And the way that the fathers trespassed and did evil is foundational. They forsake God, forsook God, which means they abandoned him, and they turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and they turned their backs on him. And so the, the result was they shut up the doors of the, of the temple, they turned out the lights, they, they just basically closed it down and went on to do other things. And so there has to be a cleansing. Now, the, the basic for this, basis for this cleansing is found over in Leviticus uh, chapters 8 and 9. Again, I'm not going to go through everything there, but there's a specific order that's there. First, Aaron and his sons, Aaron's the first high priest, the brother of Moses, Aaron and his sons have to be uh, sanctified. They have to be consecrated. This, uh, the, the description of this is given in chapter 8. And then they have to, uh, then, and only then, do they sanctify or consecrate the people. Now, that consecration involves two things. It involves, number one, washing with water, which was a complete body wash, like a bath, which pictures the complete and total a cleansing from sin. After that, they never had to do a complete body wash again, uh, ritually. They just had to wash their hands and wash their feet whenever they came into the temple, which pictures uh, dealing with, with sins that have affected them since uh, their initial uh, uh, full body wash, full cleansing. And then verse 10, we read that they're anointed with oil. Uh, Moses took the anointed oil, verse 10, anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them or set them apart. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and the utensils and the laver, and then he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, anointed him to consecrate him. And then there's the sacrifices, and you've got a bull for the sin offering in verse 14, and then they would take the blood from the sin offering, and they had to apply the blood to the altar, to the bronze altar outside, and that consecrated or set it apart, and then they had to apply that to uh, all of the other uh, articles of furniture in the tabernacle. Then there's a ram that's offered as a burnt offering in verse 18, and then uh, <clears throat> there's a second ram that is offered as a ram of consecration in verse 22, and then you have a burnt offering. And verse 28, and all of these are consecration offerings. The picture of the burnt offering was that the entire animal is consumed in the fire and the smoke goes up to God, and it pictures a complete dedication uh, to God and to his, his service. And so all of these took place 
in order to set the priesthood apart. That's the first thing. Then chapter 9 comes in. You see the same thing, that after eight days, you, we're going to see that same time frame in, with Hezekiah, that there's, there's uh, this seven-day period of consecration of the priests, and then there's a second week uh, time period that follows that. So it took that first seven days to sanctify the priesthood, and then there's a sanctification for the people, and they have sin offerings and burnt offerings mentioned in verse 2, and notice that these animals were always without spot or blemish. And this prefigures the fact that we have uh, Jesus Christ, who is sinless, who is without spot or blemish, as John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they would then in the second week they had sin offerings, burnt offerings. Uh, four, verse 4 mentions peace offerings and grain offerings. And then verse 7 again, uh, you have these various other offerings are given sin offerings, burnt offerings to make atonement for yourself and for the people. That's the idea of providing the basis for cleansing. And the, all of these sacrifices uh, were made, and so it involves an enormous number of animals. And it's extremely bloody. Anybody who has ever been involved in butchering animals, or whenever you've hunted, you know how much blood there is. I mean, I know from just uh, shooting and cleansing one deer, you oftentimes are just covered with blood and gore from uh, head to toe. And when you get done and you have to wash everything off, so it requires a lot of water, which is not something you have on the Temple Mount. So uh, I learned the last time I was in, in uh, Jerusalem that they found the remains of aqueducts where they brought enormous amounts of water in from the south in Hebron as well as uh, in Samaria in order to wash and cleanse all this blood because there were in, there was enormous amounts of, of, of blood and viscera uh, and everything else that comes out. Uh, every time you would you would kill the animals. Okay, let's go back to that. Gives us the the basis for this is that that Hezekiah isn't doing this because he thinks this is the right way to go about it. That's what Ahaz did. Ahaz was doing what seemed right in their own eyes. This was the indictment again and again and again in the Old Testament that the Israelites would do what was right in their own eyes rather than what God had told them to do. And so he's going to goes back to the law. And he uh, instigates uh, this cleansing action that takes place. It's all based on uh, the prescriptions in Leviticus. And so they begin to cleanse uh, everything, and then they go through the actions. These are described in the last half of chapter 29. They gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king, uh, all the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. This is the, set, the third word up there on the screen, tahar, uh, to cleanse it. And they brought all of the debris and all the garbage they found in the temple of the Lord out and carried it away to the Kidron Brook where they got rid of it and buried it. And then they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the month. They came to the vestibule of the Lord, and they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. So first there's an eight-day period for themselves. Then there was an eight-day period for the cleansing of the temple itself to prepare everything for worship. And then Hezekiah came in to uh, begin and to restore the sacrifices. In verse 20 and 21, they brought seven bulls, 
seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And so they began, verse 22, to kill the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar, as well as the lambs, and then they brought in the male goats for the sin offering. So they're following all of the prescriptions given in Leviticus. And what's helpful to understand here is to get a picture of what this this must have been uh, must have been like. Now, there's some other descriptions further down. Let me see if we got everything up here. Not well. We're going to start off here with this. Will give a little bit of an idea uh, that when you have the seven bulls and the seven rams and the seven lambs and the seven male goats, that this produces an enormous uh, amount of um, of blood and guts. A sheep, one sheep, uh, is going to produce about uh, a little over seven gallons of blood. So if you have seven uh, seven uh, rams, that's going to produce about um, about ten gallons of blood. If you have seven lambs, the lambs are going to produce about a half a gallon of blood, and so that's going to be about a little over three and a half gallons of blood. And you have uh, uh, male goats, that's also going to produce probably something on the order of the sheep, so that's going to be about nine or ten gallons of blood. And the bulls are going to produce about ten gallons of blood per bull, so that's about 70 gallons of blood. So you have uh, all of this together is going to produce an enormous amount of blood. And then when they are eviscerated, you have all of the intestines and you have then all of the contents uh, of the intestines, which also has to be taken out, and all of that has to be removed and cleansed. So this involves a, a lot of people. It involved an assembly line. You also had some priests who were responsible for sharpening the all of the tools that were needed and keeping all of the other uh, instruments clean. So it is a it is a uh, an enormous process, and the numbers that are used are going to increase even more as we get down to verse 32, where the number of burnt offerings, uh, when they uh, continue to uh, increase, this the number of burnt offerings then goes to. 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. So this adds, here we go, uh, 70 bulls produces about a little over 11,000 gallons of blood uh, plus a little over 5,000 gallons of gastrointestinal waste. You have uh, 3,000 sheep produce 4,860 gallons of blood plus about 25,200 gallons of waste. And the 100 rams will produce 162 gallons of blood plus uh, 840 gallons of waste. And so, and the lambs again, 200 lambs produce 108 gallons of blood uh, plus 560 gallons of waste. And so you have a, uh, a, a tremendous amount of gore taking place. What's the purpose of this? It is to drive home a point that sin is terrible, and the the consequences, the payment of sin, is something that is also uh, also just something horrible. And it, nevertheless, the, those animal sacrifices could not permanently take away sin. Again and again and again, the people have to keep coming back and bringing bringing sacrifices. And so then we come to the New Testament, and we realize that the only way we can be 
uh, sanctified or consecrated to God is if there is a payment, uh, if there is a payment for sin. And that is what took place on the cross when Jesus Christ died on the cross as the sacrifice and as the one who paid the penalty for that. And we come to passages like uh, Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just close by going to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 we read, But in those sacrifices, that is the sacrifices from the Old Testament, there's a reminder of sins every year. But it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Only the sacrifice of someone perfect, a human being to be a true substitute for human beings, could produce a true payment for sin. And this is the point that the uh, writer of Hebrews states when he comes down to verse 11, that every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, that is Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstools. For by one offering he has perfected, or that is matured, brought to completion forever, those who are being what? Sanctified, set apart to God. And so the picture that we ought to go away with in terms of our understanding of what's happening in this chapter is that the people are being ritually set apart to God. The temple is being cleansed so that now they can have a restored relationship to God. But the basis is not on what they do. It's not on the basis of their morality. It's not on the basis of their works. It is on the basis of a sacrifice that must be made in order to pay the penalty, in order to provide that cleansing from sin. And that can only happen because somebody else does it. And that's what is fulfilled in the New Testament, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, next time we'll come back and we'll look at the picture of that in the Passover in the next chapter and tie that together to bring us to a point where we'll understand the spiritual uh, maturity, the spiritual strength of Hezekiah and the nation. And it's in that context that we're going to face one of the greatest military challenges that Uh, Israel ever faced in the Old Testament. And the application principle for us is that if we aren't right with God spiritually, that when we face those same kinds of overwhelming assaults against us in life, then we don't have the resources to completely and totally resolve those challenges. Because it's only by, as, as I read in Psalm 84, it's only the one who trusts in the Lord that the Lord blesses and prospers, not because of who we are, but because we're trusting in him, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we are thankful that you provided a perfect substitute for us, that just as in the Old Testament the priest laid his hand upon the sacrifice and his sins were transferred, and the sins of the people were transferred to the sacrifice, so our sins were put upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the promised uh, Messiah from the Old Testament, the one who fulfilled all of those prophecies. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's not sure of their salvation or uh, are not certain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ, 
died on the cross for your sins. He is your sacrificial lamb. He is the one who, who's paid the penalty for your sin, covered your sin, so that by trusting in him, that is applied to you, and you are uh, forgiven of all sin, cleansed of all guilt, and that you are forever uh, saved, redeemed, justified. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.